Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Anything But Typical podcast. I know I say this every time, but this is going to be fun. And I'm going to learn a lot, even though I've known Damon for a number of years now, thanks to LinkedIn. And uh, I love reading his stuff. I love his perspective. And now we're a client of his, and I really love his expertise in SEO and everything SEO. But he's just a good human being, too. Like, he's very intentional. So, You'll you'll hear that as we go on. Love that. Uh, hopefully, you'll get to know Damon Burton better, and I know we will. We all will. So here's here's the scenario, Damon. All right, because he is a family man, he loves to be with his kids. Whatever they want to do, you know, he is fully behind that. And they travel whenever he's out speaking and stuff like that, and he does do a lot of that as well. But so he's got three kids. They they had been traveling in the same vehicle for a long, long time. And then he splurges and buys his wife a Cadillac Escalade, man. He's just treating his wife right. They are pulling into another soccer tournament. The two boys are piling out and getting all the gear out, smelly, you know, shin guards and all that. That just kind of is part of the territory. And somebody sees them in the parking lot. As they're walking to the fields, Damon, they start talking about you, not realizing you can overhear everything that they're saying about you. What would you want somebody to say about you? So, well, thanks for having me. Um, and this is an interesting question because I actually had something very similar to this happen in real life just last week. So uh, um, that's fresh on my mind. Uh, I was at a marketing conference. Um, so I, it wasn't earshot because they actually came up to me and talked to me. but. Um, what was interesting is they came up and said, Hey, would you be on my podcast? And, and I said, well, what's it about? And they said, it's about family and legacy entrepreneurs that want to leave a legacy. And I said, yeah, that's up my alley. I like that. And, and then what was interesting though, and why it's relevant to your question is she said, you inspired the podcast. And, and so I said, well, what do you mean? And, and what, what was even cooler though, is she said the, you and your wife, the way that you talk about your wife and just kind of like you, you were kind enough to mention in the beginning, um, you know, a big family man. And, and what I didn't realize in me evangelizing my wife and kids is like, I, I don't do it for any objective. I just like them. I like talking about them. I'm proud of them, but I didn't realize the impact it was making on other people. And this is becoming a more common thing. And at this event, um, it, it's an event where uh, I'm fortunate enough to, to, be moderately recognizable in that ecosystem. And by far the most common thing, the most common topic, the most common feedback and conversation was about how I talk about my wife and kids. And it was really fascinating because that was, um, that was a first. And, and so as soon as I was done with that conversation, I sent my wife a memo. Cause like you said, they were there, they were at the event, it was a seven day event. And so I messaged them and I said, Hey babe, I call her hottie. So I said, hottie, um, guess what happened? Somebody came up and, and just asked if I would be on a podcast, but I wanted to give my wife credit. Like it felt like a moment for her. And I said, I just want to thank you for letting me talk about you because here's what just happened. So, um, that'd be my answer. It was, it was a first, it was interesting. It, it was unique. Um, and I, I think that, you know, back to the core of your question, what would I hope people would say? Um, it's largely what I do here that people do say is, um, you know, family and impact before people follow me for business advice. But when I get, when I get the feedback, it's, it's more so about like, Hey, um, you know, something business unrelated. So, um, it's been enjoyable. 
Wow, what a great see. That's why you're on this podcast, you know, because you're trying to be intentional about stuff and you aren't defining yourself by what you do, you know, and what you do is really cool and really helps a lot of people and is really making an impact, but it still pales in comparison to these other things that you've recognized and given honor to. So thank you for doing that. Ben, go ahead and take it away. Yeah. So Damon's the president of SEO National, uh, and we've got a lot to dive into there because you've been doing that for almost 17 years with that brand, I believe, right? Yeah. And then you're also the author of Outrank. So we're going to dive into a little bit of that. But I want to proceed all of this and, and go back early in into your career. What was what was your vision for Damon? When pre getting into any of the stuff you're doing now, what did you what did you want to be? Because you also have some on air talent experience, things like that. So so kind of paint that picture for us. Yeah, this this is a good question. I enjoy talking about this because I think it get, my answer I think gives uh, entrepreneurs, especially newer entrepreneurs, a little bit of freedom um, and a little bit of permission to not know the answer. And I think that's why I was able to find some sort of success is that I never obligated myself to know what I wanted to do. And so the way that I always felt when I was early in entrepreneurship was I was confident that I would figure something out, but I had no idea what that something was. And I was okay with that. And so I kind of gave myself permission to not feel the pressure of like, how do I make a bazillion dollars tomorrow? And, um, you know, when you're younger, of course, the financial incentive is probably your top consideration, but I also took, I also was uh, aware, um, and had the foresight to go, it shouldn't be the only consideration. And so the way that I answer that, that I like to look at that phase of my life is, is I say I dated the phases. And so in entrepreneurship in your career, it's very similar to relationships where, you know, when you go into first dating somebody, you kind of pay attention to what you like and don't like in a relationship. And then if the relationship doesn't work out, you take from it the good and the bad. And you go, okay, the good, I want to apply and find that next relationship. And the bad, I want to kind of avoid that. And I applied that to my entrepreneurship journey. And so each career phase, um, I started in a very traditional nine to five role. You know, my first job, I was a janitor at a junior high. And and so even from even from things like that, like just today, I still use something from when I was a janitor when I was 16 years old, I'm swapping out the kitchen garbage bag. And when you put in these garbage bags, um, you know, the air comes in and then you can't like, there, there's the the captured air pressure beneath the bag and you can't throw the trash in. So a thing I learned when I was 16 is you just poke a little hole in it and then the air releases. <laughs> and so now, so like, it's, it's funny and it's kind of insignificant, but it, it applies to the conversation where there's always something you can take away. And so I always looked at it like, it was never, oh, I hate this job. It was always like, well, you know, what can I learn and, until I find the next better thing? And then after that, I was um, just a retail associate uh, at an arts and crafts store. And that there, there was a lot that came from that. Um, you know, I reached out to the lady that hired me. Uh, um, I'm, I'm still in touch with her 20 something years later. And I remember going into the interview. Um, I ended up getting this job and then fast forward a while and she offered me a management position. I was only 17 years old. And the management position was at a new retail location an hour away. And I said, I love the job, but I'm 17 and I live at home and I can't drive an hour away. And then what happened was about a month later, my family was moving and they were moving within 20 minutes of that place. And so her name was Christy. And I said, hey, Christy, um, is that position still available? Because I, I think I can make it happen. And I tell you this story because I ended up getting this management jo job um, at such a young age that the the regional manager came in and didn't want me to have it. 
um, rightly so. He felt I was dis- I wasn't qualified at such a young age, and Christy stood up for me. And I could, you know, you talking about being in earshot. I was in earshot of her fighting for me. And so there was like opportunities like that, where it's like, okay, you know, take from these, you know, this is a gift and an opportunity learning these skill set. And I ended up getting this management job. And so I took advantage of it. And so I think throughout, you know, I'll kind of wrap this up and going down a long-winded path, but um, I always gave myself the freedom to not have the pressure of going, what am I going to do? And if you do that, then it makes it easier for you to find out uh, eventually it'll rise to the surface, what you are passionate about and you can apply your, your longer term career to. So I'm really curious about that experience with the management position at, at such a young age. But the first thing that stood out as you were talking was to have somebody so believe in you so much at that point that they're willing to stick up for you to the regional manager. How have you been able to take that into your leadership positions of of advocating for people underneath you or making sure that people are taken care of? That's a great question. Um, So I I always put people as people first, not as skill set and talent first. And and I probably haven't looked at it as much in the context you gave, which is a great way for me to, to reflect on it later. But along the exact same lines is I, I reached kind of the same answer through a different lens. And that was my former employers. Like the last two people that I worked for before I started my agency, um, the, the second last gentleman was really successful financially speaking. Um, he did one to 2 million a month. I was his only full-time employee. He got a part-time secretary. Um, but it was really toxic and, uh, marital problems, drug problems, bad reputation, you know, everything you wouldn't want. And so when I left that position, I left purely because of the toxicity. And then when I, when I left, I had built up enough of a reputation for doing this certain type of design that I, a certain type of web design niche, um, that somebody else was looking for that role to be filled and heard that I had left. And so he reached out and I ended up getting this job with another gentleman doing largely the same type of design. This other guy, what was attractive about him is he was the opposite. Uh, he married his high school sweetheart, big family man, six kids, um, you know, he would stop meetings if his wife, his, if his wife would call. And so it was really the opposite of, of the guy before him, but he, he got greedy, um, at, at 32 years old, he got sentenced to 29 and a half years in federal prison. And so when I look at those two guys coming back to your question about how you apply standing up for other people is I largely learned through the toxicity and the greediness of those other people, um, you know, don't do that. Right. If you want to build up a a company culture that's effective and people are loyal then treat them as people first. And so, um, like when I hire new talent, I'll ask them, you know, you'll go through the usual qualifications and things like that. But at the end of the day, one of the main things I ask them is I say, you know, a, what are you good at? And B, what do you like to do? And I'll hire them on the second one because what they have historically done doesn't necessarily mean it's what they should be doing. And so I try to align people with what they're more passionate about. And there's going to be a learning curve. There might be a little loss in productivity over time on the short run, but in the long run, they'll be way more productive and way more loyal. And the way that's manifested is um, I've had the agency for almost 17 years and I didn't lose an employee, a team member until probably year 12. I had never had anybody quit. Like I had let people go, but I had never had anybody quit. And the first person that left was because I encouraged them that there was another opportunity in front of them. And so even when they left, it was still along the same lines of like treating people as people first and and supporting them in what's best for them instead of selfishly for me. 
and and that's manifested in um, loyalty I've put I'd put up against any other company. Um, I've been asked to be a godfather twice. I've been asked to go to marriages internationally. Um, all sorts of really really unique opportunities that um, you wouldn't get in a in a, a, a supervisor role otherwise that you hear about traditionally. Man, uh, this is so good. There are lots of little places I want to take this, but. One, so I'll show some restraint, but I will probably uh, go down some of these. Um, I'm very curious about where you have gotten this, like, intentionality. So you're very observant. Um, you've seen toxic and like, yeah, I don't want to do that. You've seen greed. Oh, boy, that doesn't lead to a good path. Talk to us about, like, where do you think some of that tenderness and observance came from? Uh, so I can give you two answers. I can give you, uh, and they're both related. Um, I, I can give you the the answer that I've, I'm most familiar with, and then I can give you the newer answer that I've, I've come to realization. Um, so the newer one, I may fumble my words a little bit because I'm still unpacking it. Um, so historically, it's because I um, grew up lower middle class, alcoholic stepfather, and so um, there was moments where, whether it was was it was in business, um, you, you can see the fly. Like if you if you get the video, I said there's a, a freaking fly that's stuck in the office. So if you're on audio only and I'm pausing, it's because there's a fly on my nose. So um, when I when I grew up, it was like um, largely the same as I just explained on the employers. Like I learned, okay, don't do that. And so it was the same in family life. When I was younger, it was like, okay, if I want to have a stable household when when I'm a parent and when I have a family, don't do those things. And so that's what um that's where kind of the observation started from. Um, but what's the the second part to that where I say it's kind of new is I think everybody as they as they get older and you know I'm I'm in my early 40s now, um what it, what it seems like is if you're fortunate enough to start to unpack your life, you start to go digging down these holes. And my childhood, I was always very aware of, of the the traumas and things like that. And they never, they, they never held me back. And I always used them as my superpowers, but no matter how you turn those negatives into positives, at some point it catches up to you. And so a couple of years ago, I just started feeling like I had this residual weight and it wasn't anything specific. I wasn't depressed or anything. It was just like, there's, there's just something there that I can't tangibly put my finger on. And so I finally started reaching out to like high performance coaches and therapists. And I'm like, look, I'm not down. I'm just not at the level that I know I should be at. And as I've started unpacking that, um, what I've realized is that part of the reason why I'm so successful. And so back to your question about being so observant is, you know, I'm a huge fan of delayed gratification and I'm a huge fan of doing things right and not fast. And what I've realized that where that came from was a defense mechanism. So when I was younger, it was like, okay, how do I plant a seed now or make a cautionary move now to avoid the the alcoholic violence later? And so then as I grew up and was out of that household and it was gone, that, that muscle that I had now developed now had to find a new home. And so that's what evolved into it becoming a, a business mechanism. So, okay, how do I plant the seeds now? How do I proactively move defensively now to set up a good offense later and, and things like that? So it's it's been a uh, an evolving muscle uh, uh, that started as a defense mechanism. Oh, that's really, really helpful. Um, thank you. 
another quick question for you because you and I met on LinkedIn in kind of a LinkedIn writers group, if you will. And, and you've got a big following on LinkedIn, that sort of thing. I'm just curious what took you down that path because it it's kind of a, you know, it, it, it's a determined and a dedicated amount of time every day, disciplined. You're very intentional. Like I love reading your stuff and then we'll, we'll definitely, I want to keep going deeper into the SEO world and what you're doing there because um, you've made a, a huge difference for us already. And we'll talk a little bit more about that, but you know, talk to us a little bit about like what got you moving in that direction. And you might be on other mediums and, you know, platforms, but I want to hear more about like what drove you into that and kind of the intentionality behind it. Yeah, I, I have a, a very clear story on this of how I got into it. So it was about three years ago, um, maybe a little bit longer. Um, I At the time, I was only on Facebook. I, I had a LinkedIn profile, but it, for those of you that have been on LinkedIn long enough, it used to just be a resume site. And so I just used to have this old crusty profile. And what happened was um, wh when I was on Facebook, I realized I wasn't productive. Like nothing specific happened. I was good about grooming my my content, my wall. So there wasn't drama and things like that. I just realized it wasn't productive. And so at the time I, I was very intentional about having a separation between personal and business. So if clients would message me, I would just ignore it. Like that was just my playground for family and friends only. And then when I realized it was just, wasn't that productive, um, I turned it off, but we all know that if you turn it off, it doesn't really go away. So I wanted it to really go away. So what I did is, um, with the help of my wife, um, actually with probably the entire credit to my wife is I said, Hey, I want to delete my Facebook. And so I had her log in and she, she deleted every post I'd ever made, deleted every comment I'd ever made on anybody else's profile, um, deleted every private message I had had, and then unfriended everybody. So just wiped it out, then deleted it. So then even if I turned it back on the next day, there was nothing there. So I did that. And then what had happened was a couple of weeks later, there was, you know, like one client that was a friend first. And so they got through that, that filter. And I realized that was how I communicated with them. So now I couldn't communicate with them. And so I thought, okay, if I'm going to turn this back on, let's, let's do it my way. And I, and I didn't know what that meant, but I was kind of willing to figure it out. And so when I turned it on, what I had, the internal dialogue I had was, well, Historically, I've used this just for friends and family, but I want to talk about business. I want to talk about SEO. I want to talk about entrepreneurship. So how do I do that without boring my friends and family? Or the opposite, I like talking about my wife and kids. How do I do that without boring a business audience? And I finally said, I don't care. And so I just started talking about both of them. And it took about, I would guess about three months for me to start to get some traction. And then about six months, um, for me to get consistent traction. And, and at that point, when I turned it back on, that's when I fired up LinkedIn. So I was only on Facebook and LinkedIn. And then at about nine months is when I noticed I had got some business out of it. And so I quantified it. And it was about $150,000 in annual contracts that it had added just in those nine months. And so at that point is when I said, okay, I'm going to be intentional about this. And you know, you, you make another great comment about how time consuming it is. And what I would recommend to people that want to get into doing more social media or, or some sort of consistency is figure out what works and then from there document it. So a big part of, for me is like, I want to be on there each morning. It's proven valuable in, financially and then also relationship wise. 
but it started taking like an hour or two every day. It was taking a ton of time. So then what I did is, is I said, okay, um, you know, let's hire a, an assistant, not to be me, but to help guide my time. And so then for the first 30 days, I said, don't do anything. Just log in, look at the way I post, look at the way I engage, look at how I communicate with people. And then after 30 days, I kind of gave them documented processes. And I said, tell me where to spend my time. And so now that brought that two hours down to like 15 minutes. And so now they'll go through and they can look at the generic comments and the generic messages and acknowledge those for me. And then every morning I wake up on Slack and they're like, go spend your time over here. So that way now I can still be me. All the posts are still me. Um, you know, I might schedule them with my assistant to publish them, but I wrote them. And so now that's freed up my time to do this at scale while maintaining the integrity of it still being my profile. Ooh, that's a, that's a good hack. Um, because outsourcing your voice where I've seen that done, you can kind of tell it, you know, you can kind of feel, you can, you can just feel it same way with, oh yeah, somebody else is commenting as you, and then what do you do when somebody responds back and you're clueless because it's been outsourced to somebody in the Philippines, you know, I'm like, what do yeah. you do? Yeah. Uh, so I really think that's a, a cool approach. Um, sorry about this, Ben, but like, I'm so interested in this because I have such an affinity for marketing, but I have such a disregard for most marketing firms <laughs> because most of them aren't very good. You know, they try to be all things to all people. And, you know, cause that's where the world that I grew up in early in my career you have been just the opposite for me though. And so I want to hear about like, how did you just like zero in on SEO? Because you have completely disrupted all of the stuff that we had traditional marketing firms telling us, oh, you need to do this, you need to do that. And you've had to actually unwind a bunch of stuff that mm -hmm. may have been legacy at one point, but it's it's actually counterproductive at this point. So you were talking about some of the web development stuff early on. And then what were you doing? How did this morph into this? And what, what does your current agency look like? So I got into SEO um, because like you mentioned, I was doing design and I had um, built up design clients on the side. And so the way that I started the agency was that that last gentleman that got sent us to prison, when that business got shut down, I had three choices. So I could either wait to see if I still had a job, um, I could go find a new job, or I could bet on myself and take the side clients. And so I chose the latter. And um, the the way that I calculated that, I think this is sometimes helpful for for earlier entrepreneurs to hear is like, you know, there's never a perfect time to start a business. I think if you've had kids or are considering kids, it's very much the same, right? There's never a perfect time to have kids. And so when I was looking at, do I start a business now? Well, the, the advantages are obvious, right? It's like, well, maybe I could find success and I could have freedom of time. And then the disadvantages for me were, crap, my income's going to be cut in half. Like I just lost my nine to five. And so my nine to five was was about 60% of my income, but it, but it was consuming 80% of my time. And so when I took that job, um, I was able to work remote. And at the time my wife was working in a hospital. And so she'd get up at like 4am. And so I would go, okay, well, why? Sure. I'll get up at 4am and, and let's take advantage of that window before the rest of the world is awake. 
And so I would get up and knock out the, the, the nine to five work, you know, by the time it was 8am. And so that would give me the rest of the day to work on my side hustle. And so then I'd work until about noon and my wife would get home around that time, take a nap and, and then I'd work, you know, more. And so that was when I was in my early twenties and, and I had the freedom and the will to do like 20 hour days. And, and I'm not saying do 20 hour days, or do crazy days, but the, the way that I looked at it in that moment was, um, you know, do this now. So I don't have to do it later. And so I gave myself kind of permission to go, here's a, here's a tangible reason to do the hustle thing right now. Not just because people say to do it. I'm being intentional about this because hopefully it'll buy me freedom of time later. And so when that business got shut down, um, so I lost about 60% of my income, but now I made up, now I had 80% of my time back. And so I was able to commit to, um, serving those handful of clients better. And if I remember, right, I think I made up that income in about three months. And so now I was back to like a consistent baseline. And then from there, I was able to grow it. Now, the way I got into SEO was I had a design client that said, what do you know about Google? And I said, I know enough that I can probably help you, but I also don't know enough that I feel comfortable charging you for it. But obviously I don't want to work for free. So I was like, how do I, how do I balance those things and, and find a middle ground opportunity? So what I presented to them was, Hey, how about I work on, how about I work on optimizing your website? I won't charge you anything until we hit these mutually agreed upon goals. So we define those goals. And then I said, if I hit those goals, you owe me retroactively for the time I invested. So that way I'm compensated and incentivized and we start a retainer. So they had nothing to lose and I was still incentivized. And so we ended up hitting those goals and I enjoyed the process and, and they had another design client that they had referred. Um, and so I was able to go to the second client and say, Hey, you know, the first guys, here's what I just did with them. Do you want to do the same thing? And so we ended up hitting the goals with them as well. And after the second client, um, I, I made a, the intentional decision right then to focus on SEO. I always had the foresight to, um, or, or maybe it wasn't foresight, but maybe it was uh, intentionality that I didn't want to have an agency that did it all much like you said. And, and so I knew if I was going to start doing that, um, it, it wouldn't be in addition to many other things. It would be largely just that. And so I made the decision then to focus on SEO and see where that would go. Um, and I've stuck to it ever since. So Gary, I want to flip this on you for a second, because this is kind of a, a unique dynamic of the fact that you two had connected and then um, Damon, now you're helping BGW and Gary and all that. So Gary, when you guys were first talking, what were the things that stood out for you? Because you made the comment about most of these marketing firms, you get frustrated. They're not doing what you think they should be doing, or at least it's more hacky type feel. So what about Damon and their process stood out for you? Oh, that's a great question. And there's actually a whole bunch of things. So the reason, and we've, we've really always tried to be very, like, give people enough time to let the machine work, right? So we didn't just like, oh, hey, let's spend some money on marketing. And, you know, three days later, if it's not working, pull the plug. You know, like, you've got to give it some time. And the last marketing firm, kind of the same thing, I mean, they're good in lots of areas, but the problem that I found with a whole bunch of marketing firms was when they tried to be all things to all people, they were kind of barely good enough in all of those things. You know, it's like, just focus on what you love to do. Like you said this earlier, it was like, <laughs> whether you knew it or not, you're, you're, when you hire people, you're focusing on their thrive zones. They're, you know, what do they love to do versus their wither zones? 
stuff that they might even be good at, but they it doesn't bring them life. So I think that was really good. And and so, you know, we were just getting like nowhere. And I'm like, there's got to be some something good. And then I would I would see Damon. So Damon, what he does on LinkedIn, if you're fo- if you're not following him, follow him. He doesn't sell you like there are people on LinkedIn that it's just every time they post, it's like a, a free commercial. Hey, you know, I'm selling gold, you know, like crypto, you know, whatever. And it's just an unending stream of commercials. And it just kind of like, just look at the engagement, pretty low engagement. And so Damon has kind of the same philosophy of like, hey, I'm going to just talk about what's important to me. And and so he started, he would do like, hey, man, this was so cool. And he would have some real life examples, some testimonials, but it was never in the form of a commercial. It was like, there's this enough of this heartbeat coming from Damon that other stuff matters. But he, you could see that he genuinely got joy out of, wow, look at what we did. You know, like somebody was spending a ton of money on advertising, paid advertising, and and this SEO world just outperformed it. Well, how? cool is that so rachel and our team so we have a uh what i call a marketing roundtable i've got the most experience on that but i don't want to be a cmo again you know so i'm like rachel you're you're in charge leverage me and my gifts however you want and we'll put other people around that love to do that kind of stuff so we have got a little marketing roundtable and you know it's like hey we'd give this given this group about 14 months kind of going nowhere, unfortunately. Nice people, some talented design, but the SEO, no bueno. So they're like, hey, you know, thinking about so-and-so. And I'm like, hey, before you make the decision, because I'm not going to put my thumb on, on the scale, Rachel, you're you're the conductor. Just bring in Damon and let's just hear him talk. So we had a meeting, did a Zoom and we hear like his process and procedure. And yeah, we have a ghost writer that writes some of our stuff that's been doing stuff for Adam for 10 years. And she writes a lot of our blogs and that, that sort of thing, Jamie. And well, hey, what about if we did this or that? And Dame is like, nope, this is our process. You either follow our process or not. And our t- entire team is like, yay, we like that, you know, versus trying to be a chameleon. And like, oh, oh, okay. Uh, yeah, we could do that. No, he he knew what he was. So that was one point. So then our team is like, wow, this is pretty good. Then like this guy has it nailed as far as surprise and delight. So yeah, they're folk. And it's not, you know, it's not just a Damon in his, like I, he's got a big team. And, you know, it's not he's the not Damon. In the he's not in the basement somewhere doing all this himself. I, I am no. in my basement. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and he's got guitars on the walls, which is is cool. Uh, but uh, but that so that team a- approach was really good. But then the first thing I get in the mail is this really cool wax sealed envelope that that is kind of the contract. Hey, here's how we work. But it wasn't just some email, but it was done well, like you would expect from a very creative ad agency oh very cool 
Well, then we get an orange night deposit, like a, you know, a bank, bank, bank envelope, yeah. a bank, envelope, like one of those zipper, you know, vinyl things. And it's orange SEO national. And it's got Damon's book in it outranked. Very cool. Handwritten note, like, man, this is cool. Then we get this box and I actually did a video about it because it was so cool. And he sent it to Jamie, who's really kind of running point on our team working with SEO National. And this box, like you, and it's like, hey, video this thing. There's a little note on the outside. Video this thing. You you open the top and these propeller um, butterflies, paper butterflies fly out. And, you know, it's like they're celebrating the fact that you're a client. That's all really cool stuff. And a lot of marketing firms, that's just all they do. You know, it's like, okay. And then, hey, well, let's talk about results. Uh, no, no. Hey, how about that direct mail that we sent to you? You know, they, they want to avoid results because it's hard to pin them down. Damon embraces the, the results. And so, and he's helped explain to our team, hey, this is why you know, some of these word vomit things that we were told, you know, hey, insert this word and insert that word and insert this word, because that's the way that the algorithm likes looking or whatever. Well, that may have been true years ago, but it's not true now. So that kind of specialization has really helped us. And, you know, they're always like, you know, the the, the transparency is very refreshing. The embracing of performance is refreshing because a lot of people don't want that because the performance usually isn't there. So that's, I hope that answers, but it's, it's, yeah. it's been an unbelievable experience, uh, you know, so far. So Damon on your end, that, that wasn't done overnight, right? You didn't cultivate this entire experience, build this whole team, that Gary and BGW experience. So take us through you, you, we're talking about the beginning of it, right? Of getting some of these people, but take us into the process of really starting to formalize the company, having more employees underneath you and and the feel of an actual organization. What did that look like for you with SEO National? Uh, there was probably a couple evolutionary points on the the timeline. Um, if, I, if I were to try to think of maybe where the first one was, um, at least one of the first ones that come to mind, was I was asked by a friend, um, he was a client that had, had become a friend over the years, this gentleman built and sold, now has six business. Um, he, he At the time he had built and sold five businesses in 10 years. And over those 10 years, we had done the SEO for all of them. And so he had earned enough stripes and experience over those 10 years that he was now gonna move into consulting. And so he was starting the sixth business, which he's now since sold. And he says, Hey, I, I want to start this marketing consulting agency and uh, I'm going to go get venture capital funding on this one. So would you do me a favor? You don't need to sell SEO national. Um, would you at least come join the conversation? Because they're probably going to ask me if I can add tack on some other forms of marketing to my area of expertise. And so SEO wasn't one of his areas. So I went into this, this VC meeting and immediately I was like, this is not for me, but I stayed because as we talked about learning, you know, dating the phases and learning, um, I learned a lot in that, that one conversation. And part of what I learned was, um, you know, if you ever want to sell, um, buyers want two things. So the first thing they want is they want documentation. You know, they want to take the keys and run. 
And then the second thing they want is they want to know where the fire is, the cells, so they can go pour more fuel on it. And so when I when I left that meeting, I wasn't motivated to sell or anything, but I, but I realized like, hey, if I want to grow this, I I need to document my processes. And I had documentation, but it was like some was in my head and so like I had steps for everything. They just weren't consolidated. Some were on a spreadsheet, some were in this other thing, some were in this other thing. And so at that point, I, I realized I need to document this formally. And so uh, around the same time or shortly after, when I started documenting it, I was also listening to two audiobooks. One was E-Myth Revisited and the other was 4-Hour Workweek. And so if, you're, if you've listened to them or you're vaguely familiar with them, E-Myth Revisited teaches you to build a business that's dependent on processes and not people. And so that way, as the talent comes and goes, you don't lose that consistency in what you deliver in your product. And then E-Myth Revisited or 4-Hour Workweek tells you how to compress time. And so if you ever listen to those, I, I find a lot of value in listening to them together but listen to Emith first because you don't want to compress time and cut corners until you know what you've documented and what's at stake in cutting those corners. And so that's probably where I first started to to get into refining this uh, as as a process. Um, and so I started documenting things, and that sucked. Like documenting processes legitimately, um, at least for me, because in my mind the first thing was if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it right, and I don't want to half-ass this. I don't want to get myself a pat on the back and say I documented processes, and then I'm like, oh man. I have to go back and redo that because I kind of skipped over some stuff. So it took me an hour or two every other day for like a year to document this because I wanted to fully document it and, and to the point where I wouldn't, other than as processes evolve, I would never, ever have to touch this documentation again. It would be so perfect that all I would have to do from here on out is hire somebody that has two things. One can read and two can follow directions. And so therefore, even if they had no SEO experience, this is documented so well that if they just read and followed it, they could not screw it up. And so that's what I did. Um, I documented those processes so granularly. And when I went through that process, the way I tried to approach it was, as I document it, there's two daemons. There's the one that can provide the education of the documentation. And then there's this theoretical daemon that knows nothing. And so write this for the theoretical daemon. And so that was an interesting um, process um, that, that it's much like writing a book, which I'm sure we'll talk about where, you know, it's painful and it takes a long time, but when, when you're done, you feel rewarded. And it was like that in documenting the processes. And so I went through that and that, that has probably been the single greatest thing I've ever done operationally. Um, there's some long-term benefits and short-term benefits. I think the long-term benefits are self-explanatory. Basically, you can maintain quality control at scale. And so now as I add more team members and I delegate things, I I know that my baby that, that I'm sensitive to um, will, will still be protected in the results that we deliver to protect that reputation that I'm proud of. Um, but in the short term, like when that moment happened, when I documented, finished documenting those processes was the first time we had an opportunity to bid on a contract that was over $10,000 per month for a single client. And so at that moment, had I not documented those processes, I wouldn't have felt comfortable bidding on it. Now, let's say I was somebody else and didn't care. And I just wanted the money in YOLO and I went and bid on it anyways. If I got it, my reputation would have went out the window because I couldn't have delivered at that scale. And so that was, that was nice for me in that moment to go, oh, okay, that was worth doing that because I got an instant reward right around the time I was done. So yeah. you mentioned two things that were really important that, that this guy that had had multiple exits 
two things that buyers want. And it's interesting because we're actually talking about that tomorrow, which will be before <laughs> this, this will release after we talk about it, but we call about the, the seven deadly sins of business value creation. You know, it's like, how do you triple the value of your business? And there are some very simple things. And one of those things is that, you know, one of those things is too many roads leading to the the owner. So you've got to diversify that concentration risk that's coming to the owner. And that's part of what you're talking about. What was the second thing, though, that this this entrepreneur told you? I wasn't told it directly. It was just what I was able to infer from the, okay, the gotcha. discussions. It was um, they want to know where the sales are. You need you need consistent sales, right? So they can go accelerate it and pour, pour, throw more money at it. Yep. Okay, cool. Yeah, that's really, really helpful. So thank you for letting me interrupt and, and go back to that. So your documenting of the processes really goes back to what you had said 20 minutes ago or so of that you seek out delayed gratification, right? And so you were willing to take the time to put all these processes together and felt great after, but in the moment while you're doing it, probably were lots of times that you didn't want to be doing it, right? Your time could be spent elsewhere. Oh, totally. <laughs> yeah. But you know, when you're in entrepreneurship long enough, you realize the beauty in that. Right. And so like, I'm in one of those phases right now where it's, um, where I've, I've been, delegating more to my COO that I brought in about a year and a half, two years ago. And and that hasn't lessened my time. It's just given me the opportunity to redirect it. And so now I'm taking on these other growth initiatives, which is largely new territory for me. They're not new in concept, um, but it's like this checklist of things. I've just kicked the can down the road on for so many years because I wanted to maintain the integrity of everything else. I didn't want to burn that down chasing these other opportunities. But now that I have somebody that I trust and I can give those things, now I'm in one of those other uncomfortable phases where it's like, holy crap, I have so much ahead of me. But for every sigh in knowing what I'm walking into, I'm really excited because I know the rewards when I'm done. Yeah, no, I love that. That's so great. What do you do to make that contagious within the culture of the business where people within the company are not just seeking that instant gratification? They're doing things the right way. They're they're embracing that delayed gratification. So um, I'll try and answer this a couple of ways. One, it's it's been something where um, I know the answer and I don't. Um, I know the answer because of what we talked about earlier about putting people first. And so in me putting people first, I've never had to, I've never had to selfishly go, okay, like how do I strategically position this dialogue with these team members so that it incentivizes the business and things like that. Um, so of course I want to, of course I want to incentivize things and of course I want to grow. And of course there's objectives in there that are, I benefit more than others. Um, but, but those are always secondary. And, and so, um, while I want to do those things and I want to intentionally uh, put the team first, it's always been from a true perspective of just putting the team first. Um, now, so so part of this I'm trying to figure out because we do it really well, but I don't have it documented, right? And so it's kind of like one of those things where I know we do it, but why? I, I know we have that impact, but impact on the team, but what are the things that I have done that have caused that? So I'm trying to reverse engineer it from a technical perspective. Um, so I don't have the best answer to that. Um, the, the, 
we do it, but it's largely because it's out of sincerity. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. And I love that you come into this conversation, a lot of other things too, right? The stuff you put on LinkedIn of actual authenticity. Like, yeah, we kind of do this, but I also don't have the exact answer. There's a lot to be said for that as a leader, right? How many people try to put up that facade of I know everything. And so I just appreciate the way you approach that stuff. Um, yeah, it, it, that reminds me of one thing I was going to come back to Gary, um, which I appreciate, you know, the, the words that Gary shared. But one th- one other thing I was thinking about while he was talking was, and you gave the key just a moment ago was transparency. Um, I don't want to have to remember lies. I don't want to have to remember my marketing, you know, hooks. Like I, I want to sleep at night. And so as, as I come onto this conversation, I'm sure a lot of other people, if they were in a position where Gary was a client, they're going, oh crap, you know, what did I say? Or what did my team say? And how do I maintain that? And, you know, I don't want to come in here and say something and now Gary's turned off. Um, I don't have to worry about any of that because of the transparency. When I come in here, like, I don't have to worry about what I've said. I don't have to worry about what promises my team have made because the the way that we deliver everything is, is it's the, the same way we deliver everything for everybody. And so there's not like these different objectives for different clients based on where they're at and who they are and how big a contract is or anything. It's like everybody gets the same treatment. So it was just a little something I was thinking about as Gary was talking that, um, and kind of comes full circle to what you're asking about is just like, it's such, uh, as an entrepreneur, it's such a weight off your shoulders to not have to fly and like, you know, think about crap and make things up. Like, and, and to Gary's point, that's, what's attractive. So why would you not just be who you are because it's easier and it's attractive? Yeah, makes makes life a lot easier for you on both ends. So, so you had... Yeah, you know, go, go ahead. No, nah, you're fine, Gary, go. All right, cool, thanks. Thanks for letting me step on your toes here a little bit because <laughs> like, I, I'm so passionate about this because kind of like what you've experienced, Damon, I've experienced so much smoke and mirrors in in our world. And especially when I was managing tens of millions of dollars at Bank of America. I mean, we worked with the biggest agencies in the world, lots of smoke and mirrors. And I saw a lot of that, especially in the dot-com craziness when I was running bizjournals.com. I mean, the buzzwords that were being thrown out by Razorfish and all these people like these 19, 20 year old kids, you know, gooey eyeballs and all this, but they didn't know jack squat, but then they were, they were running high on the hype. Right. And, and it's like, you could just see it. It just made my skin want to crawl, but there's in, in the advertising world. And I'm, you know, again, I grew up in it and I, we really tried to run with integrity as well, but there's this, there's a lot of the you know, we got to project something that we're bigger than we are. We have to, you know, uh, you know, we're defined by the awards we just won or the CA article or print magazine article that featured us. And but there's a whole bunch of like insecurity that happens with that. And I just think I just want to say thank you for being like who you are, because it is super refreshing. Um and I love the questions that you've been asking, Ben, about just like, how do you maintain that culture and this and that? I want to say our experience, because we are a small potatoes client. All right. So, you know, CPA firms are not known for spending a ton of money on marketing, and that's not us either. 
So we were almost, we were fairly apologetic about our meager budgets and this and that, but the fact that you guys were willing. And what I would say is, so yeah, we met with Damon first, but his team that is working with us, we never feel like small fish. We never feel like, you know, we're being talked down to, which matters a lot. And I'm assuming you have a pretty distributed group of people. I don't like, talk to us about how, where these people are, you're, you're, you know, dialing into this from your home basement. Cool. Mm -hmm. Uh, You get to be with your family and all that kind of stuff. Talk to us about kind of that distributed model that I'm assuming you have. And if so, how do you maintain culture and that kind of esprit de corps, if you will, and camaraderie in a distributed culture? Yeah. um, So I got about 60 team members. Um, about half are in the States and half are in the Philippines. Um, so the, the way that I've, um, and my team's always been remote. Um, and so part of it is what we've talked about where you put people first, um, from, from a position of sincerity and not ulterior objectives. Um, you know, what's interesting about, um, like I mentioned earlier, I'd put my team's loyalty up against anybody. Um, and I don't have the definitive answer, but I could probably give you some good ideas. So putting people first, you you really have to mean it. Like you can't, just like the agency client relationship, like you can't fake it between team members either. And so um, I don't pay my team members like substantially more than market value. They could probably easily get paid more somewhere else, but they're going to be hard pressed to find the flexibility um, the, the true appreciation. And so I try to, I, I always keep my radar up for little opportunities to acknowledge them as a person. Um, and, and that part I try to pass on. So like one of the hardest things that I've ever had to do as a, as a leader is, is lessen my intimate engagement with team members, because at a certain point when you get past, for me, it was about 20 team members. It started to be harder. Like just logistic, it's just logistically harder to have one-on-one conversations and 30, 40 team members. It was nearly impossible. And so how do I maintain, just like we talked about LinkedIn, right? How do I maintain my voice and, and while scaling this? And so one of the ways that I did that was one of my team members who's been with me for probably eight or nine years now. Um, he's really good and curious about people and what makes them tick. And, And so I reached out to him and I, I said, Hey, you know, I need to maintain this integrity with our relationships with the team members as we scale. And I'm running into these logistical issues of doing that. And you're really good at, um, intuitively caring. And what was interesting is they didn't, they knew what I was talking about, but they didn't recognize even within themselves at the scope of which I was asking them to the role to step into. And so I didn't force them into the role. I just said, you know, think about it. Here's here's where we're going. Here's why it's important for not only me, but the team and the company. And then a couple of months later, it made sense. It clicked to them. Oh, okay, I'm starting to see this. Like, I get what you mean. And then they were excited. And so um, they've been in this role now for about two years. And their sole responsibility is just to care for, for the team. I don't even have a position title. And I think at this point, it's been so long that now it's just a joke, but it's basically like they're the 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 head cheerleader, right? Like their sole job is just to keep a pulse on people. 
like what's going on in their personal life, um, what's going on with their kids. Um, and the things that the team have appreciated most are, you know, sure they appreciate bonuses and things like that, but it's like, it's like the things that serve them from a personal level, like, you know, especially the team in the Philippines. Um, like one of the first things I have the team do now, and this is where we're starting to document things. And back to Ben's question, like, how do you do this? And I don't know. These are the part of things we're trying to reverse engineer. Um, so when a team member in the Philippines starts, we ask them, do you have a computer that has at least this, this, and this specs? If not, we're going to buy it. And, and if you think about that, um, there, there's a business and a personal benefit to that. So the personal benefit is now that they see, they, they feel seen and heard like, oh, somebody's willing to invest in me. I haven't even started and they're already willing to invest in me. And then on the company side, it's like that there's a tactical benefit. Like if, you know, they're running on a really old computer that has four gig of RAM and you buy them a computer that has 16 gig of RAM, you pay for that in productivity in the first month. Like it's a no brainer. But where you really get the loyalty is is when there are things that have nothing to do with productivity. Like one of the most impactful things that I'll ask team members in the Philippines is, do you need an air conditioner? Like a, a, a wall-mounted air conditioner is like two to 400 bucks. It's not a huge financial investment for a business. It will make the world of difference for that person and their family. Because if you don't know anything about the Philippines, um, you know, it's hot, it's humid. Um, they'll literally have eight fans running and they're still sweating. And so just the ability to dehumidify it with an AC makes a huge difference. And so now they can, there, there's the business side where they can be more productive because they're more comfortable, but now their family feels better. Right. And so it's like, what are things we can ask them that just, just make them feel better. And it's back to the, what we talked about, like, what are you good at and, and what do you like to do? You know, how do we make them like to do things better? Um, so that's, that's led to a lot of those things where, like I said, I've been asked to be a godfather by team members. I've been invited to weddings in the Philippines. Um, uh, the wedding in the Philippines, my wife was pregnant with our daughter at the time and she was in her third trimester. And so going, overseas halfway across the globe didn't sound like the best idea in a third trimester. So I, I said, Hey, I'd love to be there. Um, my, my wife's just doing a couple of weeks, so uh, it doesn't sound like a smart idea, but what's, what came from that is the, so I'm five eleven, and Filipinos are generally shorter five, three to, you know, maybe, maybe five foot to five, five. And, um, the, because I couldn't make it to the wedding, they were compelled enough with the relationship that I had with them that they went and got a life-size cardboard cutout of me. And so this is hilarious, but as I explain this, but if you think <laughs> about it, like, so here I am, a, a 5'11 cardboard cutout towering over these Filipinos in their wedding pictures. And, and so it's funny to see, and it's a fun story to share, but if you think about the emotions behind that initiative, like how, how deep a relationship do you have to have for something like that to happen. Um, I'll kind of stop there. You get the point, but it's, it's the same thing, right? You just put them first as people. Man, that is beautiful. <laughs> I mean, you're the first person that I know on this show that's had a life-size uh, silhouette of you uh, at a wedding. <laughs> you, you know, what's funny is they call him Cardboard Damon and he's, he's still around. This was seven years ago. <laughs> and, and every couple of months I'll get a picture of cardboard Damon in the garden or like with the guitar on, I'm like, dang it, cardboard Damon's learning guitar today. <laughs> so it's, it's just like, keeps going on and on and on. 
Amazing. So I know we're we're bumping up on time, but I want to be able to leave the uh, the listeners with at least one or two tactical things, right? You're such an expert in the SEO world. So what what are what are one or two of the either common mistakes you see when you're coming into a company or something like that that uh, listeners would be able to take away? There's probably two relatively simple things. Um, let me let me kind of define SEO a little bit. Um, yeah. So it stands for search engine optimization. The, it, the it's goal good, is by to... the way, that 55 minutes into the podcast, we're finally <laughs> defining yeah. SEO. Well, that's probably on me, but no, I appreciate that. Go for it, David. So, so it stands for search engine optimization. Uh, the goal is to show up higher on search engines for words you can monetize, but without paying for ads. And so you do that through building the credibility of your website. And, and there's a lot that goes into that, but you can kind of simplify the fulfillment into three areas. So the first area is your site structure. So does it load quickly? Is it mobile friendly? Um, good user experience, clear navigation. Second category is content. You clearly communicate your value propositions, your services. And, you know, you can only show up on Google for what Google can read. So you have to put in words. Um, the third area is external credibility. So do other websites mention your brand? Do they link to you? Reviews, things like that. So when when you think about those two things, most of your gains are going to come from the latter two, the content credibility. But that will only be effective if you have a solid foundation for everything to kind of be built upon. So the first thing that we look at, and Gary could probably comment on this as well, because he'll, he'll probably remember this is the first thing we did with BGW, is we look at the structure. And so we come in and we don't want to, we don't want to tear everything down. You know, if the design is good enough and we can salvage it, we'll keep the design. But usually what we do is we come in and go, cool, the design will stay, but there's tweaks we can make to make it load quicker. Right. So a lot of times there's, there's images that are oversized. Um, there's image types that are heavier and slower than others. Like you could just, one example is you could have a ping image that you could just convert to a JPEG and visually it looks the same, but now it's half, half the delay. So the first thing I would say is, um, you can use a free tool called GT metrics. It's letters GT and then M E T R I X GTmetrics.com will tell you how to, uh, why your website loads quick or slow with specificity. It'll tell you this image is slow or, you know, these videos or whatever, fix your speed because you could have all the best content and everything else in the world, but if it's reflected uh, 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 and built upon a, a slow, poor foundation, it's always going to be diluted. So the first thing I would do is fix your site speed. Um, now, after you fix that, then probably the, the next easiest thing for a general audience to get into is, is content. Uh, there's no such thing as too much good content. So as long as you come into the position of largely what we've talked about, like on LinkedIn and things like that, where you give value first, Google's looking for unique content that's value added. And so at the end of the day, the site that makes Google look good, and what I mean by that is solving problems and answering questions, because if Google can go, hey, we can send you this website, it loads quickly, and it'll answer your question, that makes Google look good because it solved your problem. So it's going to position you higher. So depending on what your product or services it, it services are, you're you probably are the best at something or the most passionate about something. So those are two reasons to talk about whatever your something is, is why it's the best or why you're the most passionate. So get into written word what your products and services are. That makes a lot of sense. And those are definitely two nuggets people can take away and, and start implementing right away. So Damon, I, I really appreciate it. We didn't go nearly into everything that we wanted to, but this conversation is amazing. Uh, where can people find you and the company, but then also where can people find the book? Uh, DamonBurton.com will get you all three. It'll tell you more about the business. Um, there's a free PDF download on there. 
Um, and then there's more about personal life, business life, social media handles. Everything's right there. Perfect. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Been a pleasure.